Join me as we skip to the end of a book. Not the ending of the story, but further in the back, almost by the back cover. The Acknowledgements. I've always been fascinated by the acknowledgements and find myself asking questions I wish I had the answers to. Are the people they thanked still in their lives? Do they regret not including someone? What's the meaning behind this inside joke or story? Well, now I finally get the answers to my questions. In this podcast, I'll talk to the authors and explore the acknowledgements. So flip to the back of the book with me and let's start there. I am happy today to be chatting with Tanya James, the author of Loot and several other fiction writings as well. So welcome, Tanya. Hi, Nathan. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you about Loot because I found that it was very interesting and I'd never read anything like it. So I would love for you to talk and give a little bit of a premise of the book. Sure. So Loot is a novel of historical fiction. It takes place at the turn of the 18th century and in Mysore in South India. And it begins with a young woodcarver named Abbas. And he is summoned to the palace of Tipu Sultan, who's the ruler of Mysore at the time, to create this massive mechanical tiger as a gift for Tipu's sons. And so Abbas works alongside a French clockmaker And together they create what's known as Tipu's Tiger, which only a few years later is stolen by invading British East India forces. And so this sets Abbas on a journey to France and then to England, not only to retrieve it, but also to lay claim to his dream of becoming a great artist. So I think of it as in part a heist novel, in part a romance and a novel about colonialism and plunder. But also to me, most of all, it's about the coming of age of an artist. Thank you. What inspired you to kind of do this historical fiction merger of topics? I came across Tipu's Tiger, which is a real life object. It is in the V&A Museum, the Victorian Albert Museum in London. I came across it in a book, but it's the six foot long wooden tiger that's mauling the throat of an English soldier. And back in the day when it worked, you could turn this hand crank and the tiger would grunt and the soldier would groan and there would be organ music playing from within the tiger. And I just thought there there was just, I'd never seen anything like it, any work of art by an Indian that was from that time and that had such a whimsy to it, such a sense of irreverence and kind of irony and darkness and whimsy. And I just was really attracted to it. And so I became obsessed with the object itself. And then the more I thought about the object, the more I became interested in possibly fictionalizing the way it was made, who made it and what would happen to it. How much of the story of the tiger is, other than it existing, of course, is fiction versus nonfiction? I, in terms of what history I was pulling from, I tried to, at first, I really loved the idea of writing deeply researched historical fiction about the makers of this automaton. But then I quickly found out there's very little, you know, information we have about the people who made it. So all we really know is it was probably, the outside was probably carved by local Mysorean woodcarvers because it has that local style And then the inside was probably made by a French clockmaker engineer. So I just, I just took that 
idea of a confluence of two different people from different cultures and built characters around that. And then in terms of the historical events, I just tried to stick to a few of the major historical events that were that would be important to these characters. So that would include the French Revolution or the invasion of the siege of Seringapatam, which was the capital city in which the British East India Company basically laid waste to the kingdom of Mysore or to, to Sri Rangapatna as it's known now. I think I took probably a lot more liberties than I thought I was going to take at the outset, but that ended up being the sort of interesting place to play as a writer. And what I find so interesting as a reader of novels like this is it immediately makes me want to start on Wikipedia and Google and see and really read about the nonfiction and the real aspects of this. So I think that's one of the great powers in historical fiction is motivating readers to then go also research and learn more. And I certainly went down that road. And I one of the things I was very curious about was the title, Loot, is I believe while I was reading it, I came across the word once or twice. But tell me more about how the title for you aligns with the book. I think that was one of those discoveries where it just felt so perfect to learn that loot is actually a word that entered the English language from Sanskrit or Hindi. The word lutna means to plunder. And I guess that probably there wasn't a word to properly capture the extent of theft that was happening, state-sanctioned theft that was happening at that time. And I just thought it was perfect the way, it's not just that I think that there's a movement of people in the novel. There's also a movement of language. There's a movement of goods. There's the movement of the tiger. And I liked the sharpness of the word loot. It felt like, it felt contemporary in a way that I wanted the history to feel. Like I didn't want this novel to feel like distant. I wanted it to have an immediacy and urgency, which I think the word loot just has. It's just very a sharp sounding word. And I think it also has this sort of, it. I think it announces pretty clearly up front that this is a somewhat of a political novel. It's not a, it's a pretty bold word, but it felt like also a kind of cool thing to come across early on. It just was exciting. And I'm going to jump into your acknowledgements. Yeah. I have a whole bunch of questions here. So one is you think the senior curator in the Asian department at the Victoria and Albert Museum and to Robert Reese, who helped me to speculate on the tiger's internal workings. So I'd love to hear more because both of those acknowledgements seem to be related to this tiger. So tell me more. I, yeah, I, it was hard at first because I, like I said, one of the challenges that kept coming up when I was writing is I couldn't find the information I wanted in, in, I, it was just hard to find the information I wanted. And I, the first book I came across was a very slim book by Susan Strong about Tipu's tiger. And then I, I just emailed her and out of the blue and she, in a way that sometimes I just think the idea of contacting people to me is it seems like very intimidating. And I just assume they have a million other things to do, which they probably do. But she was so generous. And I think because she's passionate about that object, she immediately wrote back and she gave me the one 
only article I've ever found by Arthur Ord Hume, which I think he was he was writing from the 1950s or something, but he had actually gotten the opportunity to take the Tipu's Tiger apart and try to figure out how it worked. And it was the print was so tiny and it was just had been Xeroxed many times. And so it was like even as I was like really tr- struggling to understand what he was saying, I still couldn't fully understand it. It was that document felt like almost the most important thing on my laptop for a while because I just was like, this is going to be the key to unlock everything. And I showed it to every smart person I knew to try to help me try to figure this out. And nobody really could. And so then I emailed Robert Race, who's this amazing maker of automaton moving toys. And and he wrote back, he was so generous with his time and he he speculated on some things, but again, it was still just like this very mysterious thing where I couldn't, I could never really fully figure it out. But then I came to realize that if I was going to convince the reader of how it worked, part of the challenge is trying to convince the reader that I know how it works, even if I don't know how it works. And, and I think it's just this kind of slate of hand that you're trying to do. You're trying to walk this line of confidence or sounding confident even though I don't think the reader actually really wants to know how any of these things work, because that would be actually very boring. But they do want to know how the woodworker feels about the work and the process of discovering this new language, these reciprocator valve and this thing and that thing, gears and stuff that, that the language of it, like infusing it with the character's excitement is really where the process comes alive and I but I credit Susan for giving me that that piece because I don't think I don't know what I would have done without just this one guy's deep dive into Tipu's Tiger as difficult and impenetrable as I found it like it still gave me a lot to work with and chew on that's so interesting how you took this one piece of information or lack of information and and made this beautiful story around it And you thanked those who showed you around Mysore and answered all of your questions. So that sounds like you visited. And tell me about that. Yeah, I would have visited much earlier if I could have, but it was, I was writing during the pandemic and I kept having to postpone my visits to India. And by the time I visited, I'd actually finished writing the novel. So I thought maybe I'll get a little bit of some small details that I hadn't been thinking I would get. And I went there and it just was, it really did rock the foundations of the place I thought I was writing about. The capital city, Sri Rangapatna, as it's known now in particular, in part, it's just very, one of the things that struck me was that it's just much smaller than I thought it would be. I think of a palace And I think of a fort and I think of something huge. I don't know why I have this idea, but maybe because in modern contemporary life, everything is much bigger than it was back in the day. And the fact that the fort was so small and the palace itself was small, it really brought home how important it would have been for Abbas, this woodcarver, how important it was to be protected by by Tipu, but to be protected by someone and how invasion was a constant worry and how you know, that protective wall is is integral to one's identity, but also one's kind of daily sanity or like feeling, feeling just protected. So I just, I loved going there and I loved talking to people because that was the other thing. I feel like the research process for this book, again, like I couldn't find written records of what courtly life was like. I couldn't find a lot of written records, which 
I'm sure they did exist, but that when the British invaded Sri Rangapatna, they burned much of the much of that city, and so I'm sure they burned whatever what whatever records there had been. But but that led me to talk to people who I would ne- not necessarily ever hear have heard about because they're not historians in a they're not accredited by an institution or by a degree, but they are local historians. They are repositories of information that I would other, otherwise not be able to get. One guy I came across on Facebook, but I didn't actually get to meet him. His name is History Uncle. He is self-styled as History Uncle. And I, I love just it. love that. I love it. And I was like, he. it could be that he is making some things up or, or whatever, but I, I get the sense that he ha- he there's something about his authority that feels earned and he mm-hmm. just has an answer to everything. The same with another guy on there, Nidhan Olakarat. It was really, and it's great because these people tell you things and then they send you on, and then your mind branches in directions you never thought so that the process is like a sea anemone that's growing as you go. But yeah, talking to people led me to discover things I didn't know mattered to me, but they they did. I also wanted to ask you about, you say, thank you to my Jackson Heights family. Tell me about your Jackson Heights family. That is my, those are my in-laws, my husband's family. Um, And my, so that includes my sister-in-law, who was actually, I went to college with and my brother-in-law and my husband's parents, their kids. And they are just, they're just, I feel it is so wonderful to have people in my family and in my, my broad sense, broader and broader senses of family who are passionate about what they do, but also interested in what I do, because I do, I I think I'm the only writer in the family. I think most everybody in my family, as well as my in-laws family are doctors. They're all doing very different things within medicine and really creative things within medicine. And they're also all profoundly loyal and supportive and they read everything I write and it's just something I treasure that they are that I happen to marry into a family of readers. And and you go on to to thank your sisters as well. You thank Luca and Sajan for reminding me to play. I loved that note. Tell me about reminding you to play. I was thinking about this when I was watching Robert Brace, the automaton maker we were talking about earlier. He has this movie, a very short film on YouTube, which I highly recommend, in which he's making moving toys for for a home of uh, aging residents in England. And mm-hmm. it's so beautiful to watch their faces light up, to seeing what he's doing, how he's collaborating with them. And he said, and he mentioned the saying that you don't stop playing because you grow old, you grow old because you stop playing. And I just love that. And I do think there is, there are moments with my kids where they are just so deeply inside the game, meaning the imagined world in which they are, in which I am, I do not exist this lamp doesn't exist. It's a wizard. They're just so deep in it. And I know when I've interrupted that that state and how they're trying to, they don't even have to try to shut me up. It's just there. And that's the state I am constantly trying to get into when I'm writing, but it becomes so much harder. The older you get perhaps, or, but also the more demands you have on your life, the more attached to my phone I am. It just gets very like harder and harder to get into that subconscious play state. And I 
I just really admire the way kids can do that. And I can remember what that was like. Do you remember what that was like when you were a kid that you could just switch off the rest of the world? Yeah, it's interesting you asked that, Tanya, because that's what I'm thinking. Like, even in the book, the wonder that it would create when these woodmakers would make like a top, just like Mm -hmm. a simple toy and what it brought. And that's what I think about often is what I was playing with as a kid and how simple it was sometimes. And it was able to be simple because I was just using my imagination. So it didn't matter what it was. It didn't have to be this really intricate toy or place out or whatever it might be. Kind of like Legos in a way, right? Where you're just like, I have all these Legos and I can build from here. So, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, the, you're, the fact that you're bringing your imagination to it is part of the wonder. Wonder invites us to into yeah. it. I think that's so yeah. mysterious. Totally, yes. You also, you continue to talk about your family. You talk about your father, who I loved this, who at the time of the writing texted you a detail he discovered about Tipu's battle garments. And then you thank your mom for leading with love and courage and whose belief in us meant the world. So how did that influence from your parents influence this book and others of your writing? I think that my dad's influence is very obvious to me in terms of, I don't know anybody whose range of, whose curiosity ranges as broadly as he does. I don't, I don't think there's a single subject that I could that he would not want to read about maybe except the Avengers Marvel movies. Like he, those, that, that like really shuts down when anyone's t- in my family talks about the Avengers. Although those are usually the kids talking about Avengers. But anyway, he will read a <laughs> book about anything. And when I was first thinking of being a writer and I was also interested in film in college, he was, he was just thrilled by that. I actually think that he has, I think in a different life, he would have been a writer or some kind of artist because he, pays attention to to the world in a way that that seems of an artistic kind of spirit like he he will he can stand on a street corner and just stare at people for hours and just interested in just the small things that they're doing and I I think when I said I wanted to be a writer or a filmmaker he was really excited by that and supportive and everybody else in my family went into medicine and I think my mom was expecting or hoping for something more, what's the word, in the you know, lawyer, engineer, doctor profile. But so she and I, we had a lot of conversations, a lot of conversations about, are you sure this is the right thing? Are you sure you can't do it on the side? And I was like, no, you cannot do writing on the side. And now, of course, every other day I discover a writer who's actually a lawyer or a doctor on the side. Or, and I try not to tell her about those people. <laughs> but but I don't know. I she I have to say, though, she I really admire that she never said no to me. She really never was that parent who was like, you will do this. And she could have been. She just could have been. So I think my becoming a writer was maybe a combination of I sensed that she wasn't sure and was worried about me and uncertain. In some ways, I think that made me even more driven to to prove that I could. And after a while, I think you have to come up with other reasons for writing other than proving your parents wrong. or whatever. <laughs> um, But in the beginning, I, that was a real, a kind of useful sort of motivator. I just, I didn't want to be wrong about what I had told her I could do. And 
I know now that you have so much less control over how your write how writing is going to turn out and how your career is going to turn out. But yeah, at the time I was desperate to to make it whatever that meant. And it it looks even reading the note about you as an author in your book that your world is surrounded by writing, not just about what you're writing, but as being an associate professor of English. How does how do those two things relate? Your own writing and then I'll call it your day job. Yeah, I think I this was the first novel I wrote while having a full-time tenure track job. So it was a big change for me in terms of the amount of time I was, not just the amount of time, but the energy you're giving to your students. I worried before I took on the job that it would take away from my ability to give that creative energy to my writing. But I found that one of the beautiful things about being a teacher is that you are exposing your students to writers they haven't heard of, but they're also exposing you to writers you haven't heard of, or they're also forcing you to express what it is you find interesting about a piece of writing. And that's a very different way of reading than reading for pleasure. And also when I work on a book, I tend to think of, okay, these are the books that that I think would be influencing the book that I'm working on. So I'm going to read this set of books, mm-hmm. which are narrow in terms of scope and voice. But because I'm teaching, I tend to try to teach from a, an array of books. And the influence those books can have on my work are things that I just never could have expected. And so that I consider myself a student of writing I hope I will continue to be a student writing. I love hearing about that influence in both directions. And when it comes to this book, Root, do you have a favorite line or passage or part of the book that you can share with us? Sure. This is a passage I was thinking about the other day. This is a passage where the Tipu's Tiger is being unveiled. It's been, it's finished, it's being unveiled for the, for all the, for Tipu Sultan and all his sons. And the, at this point in the scene, the narration shifts to the perspective of Tipu's wives and daughters who are part of the Zanana. They are part of his kind of, they're hidden away. They're not allowed to be seen by other, the men or anybody else really. And so I shift to their perspective here. So it begins... As for Tipu's wives and daughters, they are confined to the zanana behind windows of jolly worked teak meant to keep them from seeing and being seen. And yet they know how to see what they are not meant to see. They've been seeing this way for ages, seeing inwardly. And if you try the same method, you just might see the fingertip of a little girl tracing a hollow in the jolly work that seems to her tapered exactly like the tiger's eye of her imaginings. I picked that because it was one of those moments in in the writing where the writing kind of surprised me. I hadn't expected to jump into the perspective of these women who are marginal to the scene and they're really not what the scene is about and nobody can see them. But I somehow, it was exciting to me, the idea of trying to give presence to people who the history has forgotten or that the history has maybe a set aside and to open up the possibility that they have their own complex inner lives that that are still mysterious to us, are still a mystery to us, but worth pondering for a moment. 
Love that. And I, I think you had a few opportunities where you did that, where I think it just brought out all these different characters and curiosities. And so when you think of the characters in this book, is there, are there any real people in your life that influenced how you built them? I think that probably my my mother is in every mother I write and my father's in every father I write to some extent. There was one, there was one line of dialogue that really spoke to me because I had heard it from somebody else. And he was describing how when he was a kid, he was a capoeira, he's a capoeira teacher, whereas a Brazilian martial art form. And he was describing seeing an older person um, do capoeira for the first time. And he went back to him later and he said, I want what you have, meaning I want, I want to be as great as you are. I want to mm-hmm. do what you can do. And I gave that to a character in, I gave that to a bus, the woodcarver. He's thinking this about his mentor. And I just, that line of dialogue that felt to me so true to the experience of being a young person, a young person on the verge of possibility it doesn't have to be someone who wants to be an artist, but who wants, who can see the possibility of being greater than what they are in the moment and that hunger for more and to be more and to do more. I just, I loved hearing that, the simplicity of the way this person said that to me. And I, so I had to give that to a character. I love that. I love hearing how what you're hearing and what you're seeing is coming into the characters and the stories of your book. So thank you, Tanya, so much for meeting with me today. This was such a beautiful book, and I look forward to seeing what else you'll be writing in the future. Thank you, Nuthan. It's really lovely to talk to you. Thanks for getting curious about the acknowledgments, and remember to read from cover to cover. Check out the acknowledgments on Facebook, Instagram, or theacknowledgments.com. There you'll find more information on the books and authors that I talk about here.